0: Hello, my name is Amber Johnson, and welcome to the Public Help Me podcast. This podcast will explore a wide range of topics from social determinants of health to COVID-19 and immunity to women's empowerment. The goal of this podcast is to have candid conversations with people who are subject matter experts, students, people who are growing leaders in the fields of public health and medicine, to have these conversations that will answer the questions and really help to spark the interest of people who are not only asking the questions in the general public, what are interested in the fields of public health and medicine alike thank you so much for your support of this podcast and for joining me on this journey hello everyone and welcome to the public health me podcast today we have a very special guest with us dr millhouse she is a urologist in the chicago area and our theme for today is white coat and black skin. My skin does not define my abilities. So during this Women's History Month, we really want to talk about topics that are really interesting and topics that will really get us into what women really do and some of the things that we deal with, some of the beautiful things and sometimes not so great things that we have to deal with. And it really helps to put together our strength as women. So I'm very excited to have you here, Dr. Millhouse.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. So to get into Dr. Milhouse's background, she is a fellowship trained board certified urologist. She currently practices at the DuPage Medical Group, which is the largest private practice medical group in Illinois as a female pelvic floor surgeon. She's originally from Nigeria and her family immigrated to the U.S. when she was a young child. She grew up in Texas and ended up at Texas, University of Texas at Houston for medical school. After hearing a lecture about urology that was given by an African-American female urologist, she found her calling. She trained at the University of Chicago for urology residency, and thereafter, she completed her fellowship in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. She is a wife and a mother of three. She's passionate about introducing young people to urology and mentoring underrepresented minorities pursuing medicine so this is a phenomenal background and such a great story to be able to share with people so I appreciate you and I salute you for everything that you do thank you so much <laughs> absolutely I know sometimes it's like people are like well I mean I just do it just to do it it's just yeah. like yeah. when people give you your accolades you're like okay I mean you know I just do it <laughs> that's how it feels <laughs> yeah I absolutely understand it So to really get into our first topic of today, our problem statement for this episode is what contributes to discriminatory practices in healthcare as it relates to Black physicians. And I know a lot of us really know what kind of the background of what happened when, you know, Black physicians wanted to practice in the American Medical Association, and they weren't allowed to. A lot of them were denied entry, which kind of sprung into action, them creating their own sector of creating the National Medical Association, where African American physicians are able to join and practice freely. Granted, now we can join the AMA. However, it was very difficult for us to do so back in you know the late 1800s. So I really want to talk about the discrimination that some kind of physicians face in the 19th and 20th centuries and kind of how that's sprung into today and followed up today. So I wanna ask you about really what you've seen and what you think has really kind of created a gateway that's are still being practiced or still happening in the 21st century.
1: Well, like many institutions or sectors or specialties, you know, we were systematically like left out Of that, you know. So, medicine was a profession. It's a it's a high esteem profession. African Americans have been systematically left out of that profession, and um, even when we have been fortunate enough to get an MD, is starting in like the late 1800s. I don't remember the exact date, but the first black man who got an MD who was an American actually he had to go out of out out of the country to, to get his degree and then and so We then we have like Rebecca Lee Crumpler, who's the first African-American woman in the United States to get her medical degree at, I think, Boston University. Even then after that, these pioneers, they struggled to like actually practice. They struggled to actually be a part of the medical community. As you've said, stated, the American Medical Association denied entry into their organization because of race. Basically, it was pretty blatant. The first diplomat of urology Dr. R. Frank Jones um, in 19, I think it was 1936, became the first board certified urologist of Black, and he was denied entry into AMA and subspecialty societies. And so what happens is we create our own, you know, we end up creating our own. And that has led to historically Black institutions and medical institutions and training programs. Dr. R. Frank Jones, again, first year Black Urologist, he went to Howard, then called Friedman's Hospital, but he started a a training program to train those interested in urology. And he trained several future urologists, you know, black urologists. We have, you know, a historically black medical society called National Medical Association, which represents us. And these structures still remain. We still need that even today, even though we're now allowed into these institutions we still need these organizations and institutions that really advocate for us.
0: Absolutely.
1: I think that that's so key
0: to really indicate that it's really, it really hasn't been that long that we've been included in a lot of these different sectors that we've had to pave the way for ourselves in a sense to make sure that we could get what we need to do so that we can represent populations that look like us as, you know, for many years, there have been African-Americans and Africans and people of color in this country. So why is it that we've not allowed people of color to be able to practice in these sectors and allow them to be able to relate and empathize with the people that they are treating?
1: Well, I mean, again, it's because of racism. (laughs) (laughs) The answer is racism. I mean, you know, we have been you know, thought to have the menial jobs. And I'm not downing those jobs, but that has been kind of our place is we have the menial jobs. We aren't thought of having the, you know, intellectual jobs, having the, you know, more prestigious occupations. And so generations upon generations of being left out of that is, you know, compounds itself. I mean, even to this day, so many communities, um, Black communities that young girls and boys who can't even conceive of themselves being a doctor. They don't even think that that's even in their wheelhouse of being it's because we're not shown these examples to this day. It's like five, 6% of physicians are, are black. So we are dealing with the effects of just compounded generations upon generations of being left out, basically not from a lack of trying, but being systematically like left out, like no, this door is closed for you. You know, there was, I saw a post recently and it was a letter somebody posted from Emory University. I think it was dated like 1950 something, it was the 1950s. And basically it was a rejection letter to a black applicant and saying, we are denying you because of your Negro race. 1950s, that wasn't that long ago. My parents were, were born in the 1950s. So it's only a generation or two generations, you know that we were still getting rejected because of our race. Now that was legal. Now it's illegal, but let's be real. There are probably legal ways to still disparage and be biased against Black applicants, rating Black, historically Black undergrads poorly. You see what I'm saying? Like applicants from historically Black colleges aren't rated as as highly. You, these are some practices that probably they won't say in public, but this is things that we, we know are probably happening. An example that we know it's happening is a Tulane University that what's going on now. It's been exposed that the way that they look at their med peds resident applicants may disparage against black applicants Well, those from historically black institutions.
0: Yeah. And that creates a huge problem in terms of not even their diversity quotient, but in terms of our overall, what does the overall picture look like and how are people being treated when it comes to, you know, their overall conditions, what they're going through. A lot of social determinants of health are not being considered in medicine because you have people that don't know anything about the struggles. No. And some of the, the things that people have to constantly go through, the systemic oppression, sometimes those transgenerational um, consequences of racism on people's health in general. You know, I've, I've been doing a lot of research recently about how transgenerational racism affects people's DNA, especially people mm-hmm. of color. And it's one of those things that I really wanted to get into because it's not talked about enough. It's something that we sweep under the rug and we just say, oh, black people just have to be strong. They're able to just withstand pain. They're able to withstand a lot of different things. But think about the fact of, you know, sometimes what that's doing to people's DNA and then what you pass on to your children. It's Mm -hmm. like that survival mechanism that is ingrained within us Mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily have to be there because we can break these systemic barriers. But it's like every time we try, it's like we're met with opposition and that's a difficult process to go through. Our ancestors have been doing it before us. And we're at a point where, you know, a lot of the new generations and our generations are saying enough is enough. We cannot continue to do this because if we want our world to look better for our progeny, we have to create a system where everyone is included. We can't just say we're including you on paper, Mm -hmm. but in reality, we're going to still be biased. We're going to still practice our level of, "Mm, I mean, you're the token black child, so you're not like them. It's fine. Those are microaggressions Mm -hmm. that people constantly deal with. And I'm sure those are definitely things that you've dealt with, for sure, as a female physician in a male-dominated world, not only a male-dominated, but a white Mm male-dominated specialty. And Mm -hmm. I salute you for just breaking (laughs) those barriers and being able to accomplish that because there's so many young Black girls and Black boys and anyone of color that can look up to you and say, she did it. So, you know, the sacrifices that we make along the way to make us, you know, unfortunately, we have to be the models for different things. And then we create what um, is going to look like
1: for future generations. Agree. Agree. I mean, that's why it's so important for me to use my voice. I mean, again, I'm sitting here in front of you as a urologist only because I saw a Black woman urologist and I was floored. I was absolutely floored that a Black woman. Was a urologist the top, if not? I think we're like number one or number two as far as like the least amount of women in a specialty, neck and neck with ortho or and neurosurgery. I think um, urology's you know up there in the lack of diversity, uh, gender wise. And then two percent urologists are black. So to be a double minority in this really, like you said, well dominated male, white male dominated field. Uh, I found my calling. And so now as a urologist, I have to be out there. People need to see. And if it's not urology, it's something else they see me. Like, oh, I can be aerospace engineer. I can be a, you know, whatever it is. Just to see representation in themselves in these areas that we just do not have examples. We don't see it on TV. We don't see it in person. We don't know anybody in real life. I didn't know anybody in real life who was a surgeon. The only black surgeons I saw were on e- was on ER. and that's part of the reason why we still struggle to get representation in medicine, a lack of exposure to medicine in our communities. You don't know what you don't know. you don't you can't be what you can't see.
0: I wholeheartedly agree with that and I think it's such a pertinent statement
1: mm-hmm. to ensure
0: that people that are looking up to people like us make sure that they see that we are doing these things so that we can create a pathway Mm -hmm. for people not to have to struggle so much through some of the struggles they may still have to struggle but hopefully the struggle won't be as difficult and it won't be as arduous of a road for people to kind of chart their path down at the end of the day yeah that really brings us into our next topic of the conversation about why the US has a very low number of black physicians, despite the growing number of African-Americans in the population. The fact that we make up about approximately 13% of the population, but only about 5% of physicians Mm -hmm. at this time. And even for, I also thought about Hispanic populations as well, that's about 18% of our population. Only less than 6% are being made up of Hispanic physicians. That's a serious issue. As Mm -hmm. we deal with migrants coming into the country, we think about situations with the dreamers, people being held in these places and they're not getting care from physicians that look like them. I wanna say not even a year ago in Georgia at the detention centers where Mm -hmm. females were getting Mm hysterectomies. And that becomes for me as a public health person, I think about health literacy immediately. Mm -hmm. Was there a translator there? someone that was able to translate the information to the patient or to their family member so that they could understand it? Was the literature translated as well? You know, Mm. it becomes a whole big thing because there are people that will push their ideas on other people thinking, okay, you know, they're a minority, that's perfectly fine, everything is okay on that side. But we have to also think about the fact that there is a huge lack of health literacy in this country. There's a lack of health education, and we have to ensure that not only the people that are being treated understand their conditions and understand what's going on, but also that we can educate physicians Mm -hmm. to be able to be in these positions where they're able to have these conversations with people that look like them. I would prefer you know and this is not me being biased but i would prefer an african-american physician or a physician of color because i think that they understand a little bit more what's going on as opposed to people that you know maybe not so much look like me they may not understand some of the social determinants of health that i might deal with or that you might deal with or someone else on a daily basis Mm -hmm. especially being african-american that's a whole different thing as an african-american woman you know yes
1: Yeah. So you touched on a couple things. I mean, number one, you, you mentioned your preference for, you know, seeking out professionals, medical professionals that look like you and studies have shown that minorities have better outcomes with their ethnically matched, racially matched physicians, you know, black patients have better outcomes with black physicians, even as early as in the need, like as newborns, newborn black newborns have a better chance of survival if they're under the care of a black pediatrician. That should be a wake up call for for everybody in the medical community. It shouldn't be so, but it is so right now. What we need to do is, like you said, increase diversity in our ever diverse population. Let's let's be real. America is just getting more and more diverse. We have to be represent. The, the people that we treat, but then also teach everybody to be culturally competent. Well, how do we do pro- solve problem number one? Increasing diversity is a problem in minority communities because there's a lack of exposure. These are communities that are generally systematically have denied the same educational resources as more affluent, usually more white communities. And so if you are, if your school in elementary doesn't give you any exposure to like career day, to, you know, the internet, to, you know, books that include professionals that look like you. If everything that you see looks like somebody that's not you, you don't see a representative Black scientist in anything that you've ever come across an education or a black physician, you know, how are you going to, again, envision yourself becoming that? If we aren't able to expose high school students to different parts of medicine, even if it's just a short one hour, whatever, that can make a difference. And so again, there's this lack of representation, lack of exposure, and then there's a the financial burden. Black families have, generally, usually have like a dollar, to every $100 that a white family has. And so you're dealing with, and medicine is expensive. I mean, it's not cheap to go to undergrad, then to go to medical school, then to do residency, to do those things. And so financial constraints, we have to address that structurally. And so these things combined, we're trying to work on the pipeline. It's a structural issue, but it's also a pipeline issue.
0: Absolutely.
1: I'm glad that you really touched on the idea of
0: being able to afford the affordability of undergrad and then grad school. There's a lot of people that wanna venture into so many different things, but you have to consider what is going to be, unfortunately, sometimes the most lucrative for you coming out of undergrad, because that's some people that's where they can just finish and end, that's it. They can't even dream of being in grad school. They may have to work in order to get to grad school. I've seen people work to be able to afford not only grad school, but also med school because yeah. they want to be able to create a better future and that becomes a wealth gap for yeah. us in society. And it makes me think about just some of the systemic barriers. Being a physician was typically you know, a white profession because the people came from Europe with yeah. money and then they were able to establish these generational wealth sectors. And then you have people that were slaves, unfortunately, having to literally build everything that they've had from the ground up. So then you see these influences and you see how this has affected people going forward and their children and their children's children. And we're still seeing the effects of, you know, slavery on African Americans and what they're actually able to do in terms of professions. And thank God, you know, a good number of you all have been able to break these generational cycles and be able
1: to be in these professions of esteem. Yeah, I think it's important. You mentioned like what the effects of slavery, but let's slavery, but let's make sure the audience understands racism didn't end with slavery when slavery ended wait, they found other ways to oppress us, you know, and so there were, uh, there was the Jim Crow, there was, um, you know, the, uh, what am I, I'm blanking on like codes, you know, these were all these things that were kept to, you know, systematically punish Black people for getting out of their place. Our place was at the bottom, you know, and there were legal things that were on the legal laws that kept Black people at the bottom, okay? Kept Black people from owning and renting and, you know, building land and, you know, getting into certain professions, you know, that affects your wealth, that affects your you the next generation. And so these were in play legally for years and not probably, maybe became illegal in the 1960s, okay? But again, because something becomes l- illegal doesn't mean it's not a practice that is ingrained. There was a study here in Chicago where I am that banks, JP Morgan Chase, huge you know uh, you know lender, they landed, There's a white neighborhood, prominent white neighborhood, Lincoln Park, more to one single white neighborhood than all of predominantly Black neighborhoods in Chicago combined. Wow. 41 times more likely to, you know, more lent to white neighborhoods in Chicago than Black ones, you know, and you just have to go to a city like Chicago to see the difference and how that difference shapes you. There's a lack of public parks, there's food deserts, there's less facilities for education and for exploring arts and for exploring science and school systems and, and all of those things. Public transportation, you know, if if, every, if day-to-day living is a struggle, I mean, how can you even manage to consider yourself uh, striving to go into grad school or to become a medical doctor. You're just struggling just to do regular stuff from every day. And so this won't, these are a lot of problems uh, are beyond just accepting more Black people into medical school. These are problems uh, that, again, are ingrained in institutions, multiple institutions and in, in the structure of our society.
0: Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought up this health equity thing, because that is like my thing. I love things about health equity, because it's so important to really distinguish the difference between equality and equity. Mm -hmm. People say, oh, I want equality, but we really need equity, equity. Equality. Okay. Everyone has the same thing across the board. And there's this amazing diagram that I always love to refer to where, you know, they're looking at the field. Yes. There's a box. Mm-hmm, yeah. Absolutely. And people are standing there with equality. Someone can't see over the fence, you know, with equality, mm-hmm. if they're not tall enough to be able to see it, they don't have enough resources to prop them up to be able to mm-hmm. see above, you know, where they are. Mm -hmm. With equity, we give people the opportunity to have the stepping stones, to be on a higher ladder if Mm -hmm. need be, in order to get to where they need to go. Mm -hmm. And I think Chicago is a phenomenal example of what really happens and how the distinguishment between zip codes Mm -hmm. that really determine someone's health equity and what they're able to do moving forward. Some people are really just trying to get to the end of the day. And we talked about this on the last episode with the Women's Health Initiative, where there are some mothers that are just saying, okay, well, I just need to feed my kids. That's all I need to do at the end of the day. I can't be worried about their health. I can't be worried about them making appointments to the physician. Mm -hmm. And it really, it made me think about the whole pandemic um, and just how things have gone and um, just vaccine distribution Mm -hmm. and all of that. And what we're expecting people to do at the end of the day it becomes a huge thing. We're not considering transportation issues. We're not considering Mm -hmm. all of the different things that people have to do in order to get to these sites in order to, you know, be able to be with their loved ones or whatever needs to happen in the process. It just, it really gets my blood boiling because I'm like, we deserve so much better. And you know, our future children and their children, the children's children deserve so much better than what America is giving and has okay. been giving for centuries at this point mm-hmm. in time. And if we don't stop it where it is, we get to a point where we're just halted and people do nothing. Yeah. And that just can't happen. We have to just keep moving forward. And I know we just slightly got off on a tangent there. Sorry. You, you mentioned my, like, it's just like my trigger word health equity. Like, yeah. oh, that gets me, <laughs> that gets me on a totally different page totally just good. like, yeah. And what are we doing here? And it I, I think it's so important that you brought up the point also of how it bleeds into what you're able to do in terms of thinking about college, thinking about graduate school. These are huge things. And for some people, the fact that they're their families, I've seen so many stories of where people have had um African parents or Haitian parents or people that have migrated from you know, the islands or various other places. And they indicated that their parents had no money in mm-hmm. their pocket, but their goal was for their child to become a doctor or become so much better than they were able to become. And unfortunately, a lot of things that we talk about all of the time in public health is that There are a lot of people that will immigrate over here and they won't know that they're black until they get to America Mm
2: -hmm.
0: because America opens up this huge melting pot of like, you're, I'm here and you're here kind of thing. It's this hierarchy based upon melanin, which is a social construct. Yeah, And the fact that we have this social construct embedded in every sector of our society, Mm -hmm. how do we move forward? How do we train physicians that are knowledgeable, that understand things beyond the lens of implicit biases, beyond the lens of their white privilege, how do we get to that point where we're able to say, this is where we're at. We have that that representation that we say matters actually is in effect that is being practiced in everyday society, everyday careers and whatever we're doing, even from policy top down. That's one of the reasons why I got into public health. I, I tell people all the time, I wanted to be a physician. Mm-hmm. that was my goal i said, like, this is what i'm going to do i'm going to make it it's going to be great but i didn't have a great stem background going mm-hmm. into college i taught myself chemistry i taught mm-hmm. myself organic chemistry and biology and ecology mm-hmm. and all of the things that you have to study as a pre med mm-hmm. and i struggled through them and i thought okay maybe it's just me i'm not smart enough and then i looked at my white counterparts who had gone to affluent uh, you know schools and they were affluent in their their backgrounds And I'm thinking to myself, why is it that they get these concepts and I don't, is it something about me, you know, Mm -hmm. because I, I came from California, I was in a private school and then I came to the East coast where I was in a public school and it was very, very different. There Mm -hmm. was a huge learning gap for me. I literally spent, I remember spending 10th grade uh, chemistry, honors chemistry. It was like a study hall. People Mm -hmm. just walked around, played games, and there were so many behavioral issues. And the school was um, predominantly African-American. And... um, we, we probably had like a few Hispanic people, a few um, Asians and other communities of color. And I just, as I got older, I started to think about these concepts of what's going on sometimes in these public schools in these urban neighborhoods where they're dealing with a lot of issues, not even just of behavioral issues, but also just the, the equity, equality, everything that's being poured into the school. It doesn't, it's not just like, a baseline thing. It's so like multifaceted
2: mm-hmm. and it
0: all. And as I got into college, I thought about just everything that I had gone through and I'm like, okay, I can, I can do this. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to do it, but I had mentors that were African-American. Thank God who mm-hmm. had their PhDs in biology, who were able to say, Amber, no, you're going to graduate. You're not going to be like the other people. You're going to stop giving to people that, you know, are just take taking, taking from you. Cause I would establish study groups with people mm-hmm. and I would be the one teaching them the information. Mm-hmm. And then it comes time for the test. I'm not doing well on the test, but they're doing well. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they would sit next to me in class and I would see people peeking over mm-hmm. at my exam. And I'm just like, what is happening here? Mm-hmm. So as we really get into the overall scheme of things, these were unfortunately my white counterparts relying on the knowledge that I had mm-hmm. in order to pull themselves up. Mm -hmm. And then I'm left in the dust. So I had to really teach myself that this is a thing that I have to stop allowing other people to, you know, kind of pull themselves up by standing on top of me Mm -hmm. in the process. Mm -hmm. And I think as African-American women and African-American professionals, we really get into this position where we have to say enough is enough. Like You want to help people, but it's really difficult to help people without hurting yourself sometimes in the process.
1: Sure. Yeah, we have to take care of ourselves, especially because we are often at a disadvantage. We don't, again, have um, the connections or the mentors or, you know, the people who even know how to counsel us. And it's like, baby, you're going to medical school? Great. I don't know anything about how that process is is to get into medical school, to get into residency. And so we have to find people who will we have to take care of ourselves and find people who will invest in, in guiding us. Um, there's a lot of guidance in this process to become a urologist, to become any physician. It's like, I didn't get here on my own skills. I was guided through at every step of the way, there was somebody that I leaned to, to help guide me. Like, is this the right thing I should do? Oh, don't do that. Oh, change. you know, you should be doing this, you know, um, that kind of stuff. Um, but you said something about like, how do we, you know, teach, or I don't know how you worded it, but, and how do we train our current physicians how to take care of patients um, of color? I think is what you were alluding to our diverse thing. And I think it's, it's a process. I mean, we're not going to see the end result of this in our lifetime. Um, you know, we're just laying seeds and foundations that will be built upon. But you know, number one is every major, every institution, healthcare institution, um, healthcare organization, they need to acknowledge the role. of, They need to acknowledge the healthcare gap and. Um, Acknowledge the role of um, structural racism and implicit bias in medicine, in healthcare. If you're not doing that, if you're not acknowledging it and doing that work in your healthcare institution, you are already behind. Okay. You know, you need to get on the train and it needs to be a priority and not, it can't be like a checkbox thing. It needs to be like a whole priority. How are we going to be a part of this solution and part of change? Um, I work for a large multi, like I, like you said in the intro, a large multi-specialty institution or, or private practice. We have made it a priority to tackle disparities, you know, patient facing disparities and also employee facing or, you know, um, barriers, like how are we not supporting or, so you know, or how can we better support our, our employees and physicians of color? And obviously, how can we better be serve our communities of color? So there has to be an, a priority. Um, it has to be a consistent thing. It's not again a checkbox where you do a weekend or a course for an hour. Okay, we did it. No, this has to be ongoing, intentional training and education. Okay, there's a lot of education here. I didn't know. I didn't know social determinants of health until last year. Didn't know that phrase that even wow. existed. You know, until that. You know, um, I think I didn't know that that was a thing, but I knew of. I knew the concept, but didn't know that, oh, there's this actual, like, this is science, okay? There's a whole science behind this. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we don't, these aren't things we're taught in medicine at all. We're not even taught how to like talk to and, and treat patients of different backgrounds. They don't teach us that. They need to start, you know, we, we, you know, we need to start learning. This needs to be part of the curriculum. How do you talk to your patients who are, who are Spanish speaking or other, you know, how do you effectively talk to patients who have a language barrier? That needs to be a medical school, like one-on-one. How do you um, um, gain uh, a relationship or develop a relationship with your black patients? How do you, um, how are you, how do you, how, how are you, can you be a sensitive doctor to our LGBTQ uh, plus community, all these things that we need to be trained that we're not trained we're out here just thinking you know there's a lot of well-meaning people in medicine thinking they're giving equal care but giving inequitable health care and i have um, made it a point like personally i have gone to my department in urology gone to my institution and i've kind of been an open book and said listen these are the things that i have learned even in my own practice I don't think I was giving equitable care to my Spanish speaking population. Why? Because I was, it was, I had to have an interpreter and I was maybe not giving them all the information. I honestly became aware of that. I mean, this is a way that this is, you know, again, that implicit bias that that we have, we all have and have to be aware of. Um, And so, you know, that's one example. Um, So we just need to, it needs to be intentional and ongoing.
0: I wholeheartedly agree. That is my dream job to train physicians how to be more aware of -hmm. their implicit biases, how to be aware of social determinants of health, really ingrain and incorporate public health into the practice of Mm -hmm. medicine so that people can understand that it is not just a textbook example of what you see that is a disease presentation, that it is an overarching thing that there's so many things to people's stories that you can't get in a 20 minute visit sometimes, sometimes even less than that for people. And I want to ensure that, you know, going forward, that that is something that physicians and healthcare providers are able to provide to patients so that they will understand that like, this is a thing. And this is why, you know, your patients that you call non-compliant are being quote unquote, yeah. you know, non-compliant. Maybe they can't afford to go to the nearest drugstore to pick up their medication. They can't do, you know, all of the things that people can do that are in affluent neighborhoods. I remember um, at the beginning of this pandemic, um, my sister ended up contracting COVID. So they actually, the healthcare provider sent a town car to her with a pulse ox and a couple of other things that she needed. Wow. And I thought to myself why is this not something that's being practiced mm-hmm. across the board in yeah. urban neighborhoods and in places where people don't have accessibility, where people are thinking about if they're on tra- uh, you know, public transportation right now, what is happening you know, to these people? Do they have a higher risk of contracting COVID? You know, They're thinking about all of these different things. Are they unemployed? Can they afford to even get on public transportation? And for some of us, that's a few dollars. Yeah. But for them, that's like, you know, a couple of hours of work, um, you know, those kinds of things. So yeah. I just, I constantly think about what it is that we're doing and how we're thinking about the overall approach to medicine and healthcare and how we can be combining so many different fields to work together as allies instead of against each other mm-hmm. so that we can learn some things from each other because we didn't all get here on our own. So I am so glad that, you know, I'm able to sit here as a public health professional, a budding public health professional, and speak to a physician who is established in her career, and really understand some of the things that, you know, public health professionals are really trying to teach on their own on the side. And then it's like us against medicine, and we're trying to all talk, but it's like, Everybody is like, well, we know more because we're the MDs kind of thing. So Mm
2: -hmm.
0: I think sometimes it really gets lost in translation, but really, as we kind of go into, um, as we finalize this episode, I want to know how we can really, um, tackle the issue of racism in medicine, um, from your point of view and some of your personal experiences of dealing with these types of things in, in your practice.
1: You know, obviously, there's two sides of racism in medicine. There's the patient-facing side, so how are phys- how are patients facing the racism? And then there's the um, physician-facing side, or like the um, p- the healthcare provider-facing side, the people who are in the health industry. What are the barriers and in- racism that we face? And so. Um, You know, as far as my experiences as a Black physician, there's definitely, you know, you used throughout the term earlier, microaggressions. Microaggressions are a form of racism, whether they're in, whether it's um, intentional or unintentional. And a lot of microaggressions are unintentional. Microaggressions convey a sense of otherness, of inferiority because of who you are. So because I'm a black woman, I shouldn't be expected to be a surgeon. So when somebody's like, "Oh, you're the doctor, oh my God, you know, I didn't think you were going to be the doctor, you know, that kind of thing. Or you know, things like, well, you're a credit to your race or something like that. or you know, there's been, I mean, there's so many examples there you know, the most flagrant um, microaggressions are just uh, are just flat out assault. Uh, one notable example that I've shared, um, on my page, a couple times is as a medical student, I was rotating um, in a urology uh, in a, at an outside institution on urology. And this was me, this was before I formally applied to urology. So I was, you know, kind of the eager medical student who's trying to put on the best face because I'm trying to get into this very um, competitive specialty and, then, and I'm a visiting medical student at another uh, institution and I walk into the operating room and the operating room, you know, typically has like five, six, seven other people potentially, you know, uh, in the room. There's other medical students, a resident, a fellow and, uh, and the staff and the lead surgeon in the operating room asked me where I was from because he recognized that my name had, you know, was not American. And I explained I'm Nigerian. And he says in front of the whole operating room, what the hell is wrong? What What is wrong? I don't think he's hell, but what, what in the world is wrong with that God forsaken continent Africa, you know? And so it was, you know, the most probably denigrating public denigrating comment that I have experienced, not the most denigrating in private, but the most denigrating in public at work that I have experienced, um, and um, you know those type of things, you know, you you don't forget that. I don't forget the way I felt. You know, I can I still remember feeling so small yet so on stage, like I was on stage but so small and so insignificant and so unworthy of being there. Um, and so there's stories like this on top of that burden of dealing with microaggressions, and I probably get microaggressions from patients or other staff on a weekly, easily on a weekly basis, (laughs) you know, you, you, you know, you kind of like form a little bit of a thick skin, but you also kind of, you know, you, you internal, you, you don't, you, it, it does get, it, it does uh, wear on you. But on top of that, there's like this black tax or this, you know, tokenism type thing. So now I'm the lone black person and now I have to be the representative for all black people. And, you know, um, I'm expected to, you know, Hey, teach everybody else about racism, discrimination and microaggressions and you know, and all of those things. And a lot of this teaching I'm happy to do, but it is a tax, you know, that I, you know, that it falls on the people, the very people who are already burdened with the systemic racism, get exactly. to be the ones who are also burdened with teaching everybody about about it. Is so, um, and that gets wary. And then sometimes in institutions, there's been repercussions for being brutally honest. You know, we saw that with Dr. Corey and um and I think I might be butchering her last name, Dr. Aisha Corey in um, Kaiser Permanente. You know, she was an internal, I think she's internal medicine. She was asked to give a lecture to medical students about, you know, um, you know discrimination and whatnot. And she gave probably a very honest lecture that some people didn't like, complained and oop, lost her job. We have a lot to do in medicine, a lot of work to do, a lot of work to do. Um, and um, you know a lot of problematic um, things that need to be addressed and fixed, so we can again be better serve the healthcare providers of color, um, of you know, of different backgrounds, and better serve the communities in those respective backgrounds too.
0: Absolutely, I think it, it really boils down to a lot of the times they want us to speak, but don't speak too loud. Yeah. Don't be too boisterous about what you're saying. And I think that's something that our parents teach us from very early on. Um, I remember my mom used to tell me, I want you to be seen and not heard. Mm. And that's something that is ingrained in my psyche. Every time I go somewhere, I have to be demure. I can't be too loud. You know, when I'm talking to my Black colleagues or friends, I can't be like, oh, girl, let me tell no. you. Yeah, we code, code switch, code switch. Exactly. Yeah. It's exhausting. It's, yeah. it's basically a component of imposter syndrome.
2: Mm-hmm. And people
0: don't realize it, that we constantly have to put on this different face every yeah. single day. Yeah. And I, and even through my podcast, I'm always wary of, you know, people yeah. saying, oh, well, that was a bit too much, Amber. We didn't like that, you know? Yes. So it, yes. it, it's difficult. And yeah. I get it trying to be the poster child for all things black is a lot, you know, when you're in these institutions and when you're in these places, because you're trying to figure out, oh my gosh, like. Can I say this? Am I allowed to say that? Like you have to run it, run it by a couple of people, a diverse background a panel of people like you're presenting a dissertation, for God's sake, you know, throughout the process. And it's a lot, especially with the racial injustice that has really been boom, slammed in everyone's face during the pandemic we have our own things that we're dealing with we're constantly seeing our brothers and sisters perish because of the systemic racism because there's a lack of you know diversity because there's a lack of you know people understanding what implicit bias is to begin mm-hmm. with in all sectors not even just medicine we have to get down yeah. to the root causes of these things and unfortunately that's a that's a huge tree whose roots is ingrained beneath the roots of, I mean, beneath the soil of our nation. And that's a lot to tackle, especially as we venture into these professions and these careers, understanding that we can't do it all in our lifetime, but at least if we can start the ball rolling, hopefully the world will be a much better place because we were in it, because we spoke up and we weren't so quiet and demure about things that mattered and bothered us. Agreed. So as we, as we finalize this conversation, I really would want to know what advice would you give to up and coming black physicians um, that maybe in medicine in general, urology, whatever you would like to
1: say. First and foremost, you know, you, you can't do this alone. You have to find a tribe mentor, you know, find people that are going to be supportive of you in this journey. And they don't all, all have to be black by any means. Um, actually, um, most of my mentors in urology were non-black. My, one of my biggest mentors, uh, two of my biggest mentors, were, were white, were white men. Um, it is if you can find black mentors and 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 especially in your tribe, it helps because then you can also like have this way of relating um, about you know again all of these other sides of medicine and, and just being the being in this profession um, that is unique as a, within the black experience. Okay. You know, again, being black in America is a very, very, very unique experience, you know? Man. And so, and so cultivate that cause they're going to be instrumental and in kind of pushing you when things are not going well and um, educating you and guiding you. Um, and I would say get organized, like logistically get organized. It's, it's a long process to get to the light at the end of the tunnel. And so you have to take it and break it down into Different steps. Okay. I need to focus on, you know, doing well on the MCAT so I can get into medical school. Let's get that organized. I need to then focus on, you know, how do I get experience in medicine so my application it looks better, or research or whatever. And so you want to get organized and break it down and don't be so focused on the end result right away. Like, take each step because it can be overwhelming and everybody. Last advice is to say is everybody has felt unsure, imposter, second guessed, like I'm not good enough, just like you. All of these feelings that you probably may be feeling along the way, we have all feel them too. We look good now that, you know what I'm saying? You see this polished thing, but I'm telling you, even to this day, I have imposter syndrome. I'm sitting in like, you know, our, our department meeting where I'm sitting or speaking at a conference and I'm like, how did I get there? How did I get here? I am not on the same plane as the, you know, everybody who's, who's around me. You know, I'm, I don't know if I'm really, you know, up to this, I'm, I'm intel- intelligent enough, I'm savvy enough. And so um, you are, um, you know, and you have so many people um, that uh, have gone through the same exact pathway that you did.
0: Thank you so much for that. Even though the advice was to the audience, you literally just touched my soul with it. So I appreciate it 100% as I go through the process, you know, of getting my doctorate. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly, that was amazing. I appreciate you being here and your insight and everything that you've provided for this episode. Thank you all so much for joining us today for this episode of the Public Health Me podcast. And please ensure that you are an advocate for yourself, that you stand strong, and that you know that the journey is, going. it may be arduous, it may be long, but it is worth it. And that you will benefit so greatly from everything that you're doing, everything that you're immersing yourself in, and that your struggle will not be in vain. So thank you for everything and please stay safe and well, everyone.